real quick, help our listeners just say what post mill refers to quickly. I'll let you do that, uh, JD, since you're. No, I'm not even sure. I'm just, the... I'm just trying to read the Bible. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I am Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Excellent. You're doing great, Nick. Thanks. Got all your Christmas shopping done yet? I'll have to ask my wife. Oh, okay. She's the, she is, she's the Christmas shopper she was complaining about it online like she didn't really want to do it now i know we, we try to steer clear of each other this time of year <laughs> she, she goes yeah. her way i go mine well now it's just a function <laughs> of of various amazon carts i mean that's the uh the state of modern shopping like we've Except come that to amazon's getting harder and harder to reconcile supporting in any way <laughs> it is hard i i feel you and then the convenience of it all yeah. just just takes all of your scruples and says, well, that's you know. Right. <laughs> then they have free shipping this year. That's right, free shipping. So, <laughs> well, it's like the iPhone. Right, right. Yeah, it's like this iPhone. I wouldn't, uh, I mean, yeah, everything. I have done a fairly good job of divesting myself from Nike. Like, I don't know, okay. maybe that shows you what I really care about because when they had that whole like anti-man, you know, sort of, um, and Gillette uh, razors for that matter, like that whole kind of toxic masculinity yeah. stuff. And I was like, that for me, I don't know, maybe that's for whatever reason, it just, it triggered me, I guess, would be the modern word. And I have yet, I got rid of all my Nike stuff and I have yet to buy anything else. Um, even no, it's, not, it's not, uh, it's not the topic of this podcast, but why on I, I just it doesn't make any sense to me for a company to make a political stand on anything i mean you're trying to you're trying to appeal to the most the broadest base of people you can to sell your stuff right so why would you want to try and make like half the populace angry with you <laughs> it just doesn't uh, really make any sense as michael jordan famously said republicans buy sneakers too yeah, yeah. Right, right right I don't know. I mean, there's well, there are theories about all of that, you know, yeah. woke capital and, and why they would yeah. um, has to do with global economics and supply chains and China and all sorts of things. But <laughs> but I agree with you. It's not as much fun to um, watch anything. I've been watching these memes go around and say that, like we used to be a country memes, you know, and it's just basically pictures from like the early 2000s or like the late 90s. <laughs> like, remember, remember when we, you know, um, what was one of them that came around was like, give me. Um, I never played online gaming uh, like in the mid 2000s, but evidently, you know, it was kind of the wild west of uh, chat rooms and people <laughs> cussing and calling each other names. And it was like all politically incorrect, of course, you know, and they were like, give me back Call of Duty chat room 2004. And, you know, it was like the good old day. No, like, it's like with no content filters and, you know, all sorts of, you know, crazy, um, terrible things that, of course, would get you. Um, the, the thought police would kick down your door nowadays. But um, I mean, I was never a part of that, but I, I had a twins of nostalgia just imagining what it would have been like to, have, you know, I mean, how, how, how impossible that would be now. But at any rate, uh, Merry Christmas, you filthy yeah. animals. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers, right? <laughs> That's it. That's exactly right. <laughs> Speaking of Advent, we do find ourselves in the middle of it as we record this episode. Now, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, so Advent was just a normal part of annual worship for me. We had an Advent wreath at home, an Advent calendar, one of those little things that hangs on the door and on which you open a little door every day and read the Bible verse printed inside. 
And no, you spoiled brats out there, I never had the advent calendar that had the little piece of chocolate inside each door. First of all, it was the 80s, and second of all, I was raised by two Grinches. <laughs> but but much later in my life, I found myself living in Florida during December, and I was worshiping at a Presbyterian church there. And then all of a sudden, Christmas appeared out of nowhere, and I was really shocked by it, not ready at all. And I realized that the reason was that this church I was worshiping at did not celebrate Advent at all in any way. And so the three of us wanted to take this week, this episode, to talk about Advent, what it is, why it's good to observe and to celebrate, and how it can help us focus on the good news. So guys, in my best Seinfeld voice, what's the deal with Advent? We should ask our resident high church. High yeah, church now, here. see, um, here we go. Already, he has a very, he has, <laughs> he has a set of he has a set of vestments for each. Yeah, the, which the color is the third candle? Advent. No, no, not just the Sundays. Each day has its own special <laughs> candle. I'm sure. <laughs> so, Father, <laughs> <laughs> there is actually an Advent wreath that does that, right? That has a different candle. I don't, I don't know for each each day. Yeah, yeah, um, and then the big candles for the Sundays. So if you want one, I can show you. I can send you a link. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'll put that in the put that in the show notes. The show notes, right? It'll shut the internet down. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised in the Episcopal Church too, but I was also raised in a house that, you know, my mom started playing Christmas music in the car, like it, you know, before Halloween. Like as soon as I oh boy, yeah, because we I grew up in South Texas where it was hot and. I mean, it was hot all year round. I mean, you have to get down to 30 maybe in the winter when first days, but um, but it was basically hot. And so my mom just always wanted to live up north in the winter. So anything like smacking of Christmas, you know, she was she was just like a magnet toward it. And so, yeah, again, October, mid-October, <laughs> uh, Christmas hymns are going. Uh, by the time Christmas rolls around, by the time the week before Christmas rolls around, our house is like a, you walk, if you're like a, like a Christmas shop, you know, where you walk in and everything's yeah. like, yeah. like 15 Christmas trees everywhere and uh, you know, fake. Uh, There's a town everywhere. in Indiana called Santa Claus, Indiana. Yes. It's the whole town <laughs> thing. And the golf course, uh, the, the flags of the golf course are giant candy canes. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a nice golf course. But it's insane. No, but I, I mean, I, I love it. I love my mother and I love, and I love the, and I, and I love the, I loved it growing up, but I did it. it you know, when um, I did notice that, you know, in church, it was different than it was at home because in church, you know, things were somber in, in Advent in a way they weren't in my house. So I did, I did begin to notice that growing up. I didn't know exactly know why. I'm sure my priest told me every once in a while what this is about, but um, I didn't hear about that much. And then um, when I, when I started at Good Shepherd is when I really started to have to pay attention to it because as you mentioned, my congregation is a very high church congregation. So I, I really started paying attention to it. And, you know, it, the word of course, Advent means coming. And, and so, uh, the idea of it is that we are looking forward to Christ's return and we're also remembering, uh, what it was like before his first coming. Um, and so the readings are kind of a mixture between those two things. You have, you have some readings that are focused on, um, on, on eschatology. You have other readings focused on the, uh, the events leading up to his birth or the prophecies leading up to his birth. Um, and so it's, it's supposed to be a time of somber waiting. So it's, it's, it's called, a, some people say it's a mini Lent, but I think it's a little, I think it's, 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 it has a different character than Lent. Lent, Lent is all penitential. I mean, it's, 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 it's most, it's, it is a time for repentance. Advent is penitential, but it's also, it's also kind of has this tinge of hope in it because you're, 
yeah, you're you're waiting in the shadows for the coming of the Lord, but you're waiting for the coming of the Lord, and so he and you, and you know he's coming. So there's there's a little bit of hope um, mixed into it in a way that isn't quite there in Advent. Although of course, when I mean, Holy Week comes around, that's there. So I mean, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you very low snake belly low people do for for Advent in your in your churches or homes, but so, so most most we do treat it like Lent. So we take on extra disciplines, or we 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 take note of ourselves, things that we need to repent of. More more might be a time to do that. So hey, if you're you know, you know drinking a whole whole bunch, maybe take Advent before Christmas and drink a whole lot less. Something along those lines, or if you're eating too much, this would be a good time not to do that. Or if you're watching pornography, stop porn. You know, something uh, like a Lent, we use it is 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 a, is a way to um, to offer up to God those sins that are besetting, and ask Him to help. And just for the record, if you give up porn for Advent, just keep on giving yeah. it up. Keep it out. Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, that's a good, see, that's the thing. You don't. <laughs> the point of a, of a discipline in any penitential season, if you're especially. If, well, if you're giving up a sin, which you should be doing, is yeah, you, you don't go back to it. <laughs> I can take a break on Sunday because it's like a little resurrection day. So right. no. it is funny. <laughs> it, it is funny. I mean, having as we said before, I didn't grow up in this. Um, it, you know, the, the, the older I get, I realize that how deeply divided at least Baton Rouge is um, against sort of Roman Catholics over against all the other um, traditions, most notably Baptist, because. I mean, it is a, um, so I mentioned a sermon on Sunday, on Gaudete Sunday, you know, for all of the parishes, we don't have counties in Louisiana, all the parish, they're, they're all part of the Roman Catholic parish system. So I grew up in East Baton Rouge Parish, but we also had uh, Gallaudet Parish, um, which is, of course, what I didn't have no idea what that meant, you know, but it was, we had Assumption Parish, Ascension Parish, you know, we had all the, the various parishes. But that was as close as I'd ever gotten to um, anything Advent related uh, until as I was an adult is something called Gallaudet Parish and whatever that could mean. <laughs> and then so, so the introduction to, um, to the liturgical season was much more naturally during Lent because it made sense in a way that Advent has only started to, I have to say, in the past you know, five, ten years. Um, makes more sense to me as a penitential season, as a as a apocalyptic season, you know, as a um, sort of unveiling time. And I've been con- considering that much more uh, frequently uh, this particular Advent than I have before. I think in part because of all of the various kind of apocalyptic unveiling realities we have walked through over the past, you know, 18, 24 months, you know, with respect to clarifying people's understanding of... Um, well, everything, you know, their, their, their fundamental political convictions, their fundamental uh, fears of, of death and hope for where they find that in the midst of confusing times, you know, their political, uh, like I already said, the political convictions, you know, questions of ethnicity, all, all of it has been uh, very clarifying. And so when we look at the first coming of Christ, um, you say, well, that was, um, you know, what Oswald Bayer would call the great rupture in time. You know, this was the, there's really rightly understood that BC and AD, um, whatever you want to call it, is that the world was was riven in two between that which uh, thought of and considered the possibility of a Messiah, of a unified God who speaks and one who who professes that and you know that's what we've been sort of focusing on um in our church or at least in my own preaching and teaching during the season is the is the you know he came in great humility uh but he's the second time he comes he's coming um in glory you know to judge the living and the dead and so there's this intervening time that we are given 
to actually uh, appreciate and reflect upon the, the fact that it's not a conjecture as to whether or not his kingdom would have no end. Like we are in, we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of his, the expanding, never-ending kingdom. Um, and we are literally living uh, proof of that because it took um, the, the witness of a few that became a many that became uh, the church that is continuing to um, advance around the world, you know, one heart at a time. And, you know, of course, we see ebbs and flows throughout history, but the fact that we are uh, part of a continuing expansion of his, uh, the promised fulfillment of his great commission upon his first arrival uh, in preparation of his second is, is what's being celebrated during Advent. And so I'm, I've been thinking a lot about that uh, recently. And um, I don't know, it's been edifying, you know, I think, for, for me. And it's, and it's turned Advent into a much more contemplative and, well, powerful season than, than it has been in, in the past when it was simply, I wouldn't say it's, it's, not, it's not this, but it was simply a irritating break on my <laughs> fleshly desires to open presents. You know, it was like, it's like, that's important. You know, patience is something that needs to be cultivated. But, but this is a, has, has been an altogether different um, season for me. And for that, I'm grateful. Nick, what are y'all doing? Well, nothing exceptional. I mean, we do have an Advent wreath in the service, and we do light it, and we are waiting. The thing that I have found, be pointed to this juxtaposition between Jesus' first coming in humility and his second coming in glory, and the thing that I've been, in my own, again, preaching and teaching this year, seeing all the more clearly, is that it seems like our lectionary preparers want us to know about the glory part this season of advent we really don't hit the humility much until basically christmas eve that the readings that we've been reading in in church recently have been you know refiner's fire from malachi and john the baptist warning about the wrath to come and the coming of god is a questionable prospect for a sinner you know, it's like, yeah. is this going to be good news or not? This is a this is the question that Advent begs. Is God coming here going to be good for me? And I think one of the values for Advent that I see is is forcing us to meditate on that question. Amen. Yeah, I mean the, the existence of God in general is not a good is not good news necessarily. I mean this is um right. you know this is what the famous fight club quote, you know, you might have to come to grips with the fact there is a God and he just doesn't like you, you know. That's I mean I think you know there's something deeply true. I was talking about this in a class on Sunday about you know, a lot of, um, they were talking about uh, human sacrifice. We're talking about Molech, you know, and I said the, the descendants of Canaan, you know, in the Canaanite religion um, were not entirely wrong. You know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see the infiltration of pagan ideas into the revelation of, of the proper worship of Yahweh. And so it's sort of a corrupted version of it. And so, you know, the idea that blood is required for forgiveness is is seen throughout all sorts of various religions it's just it was it was uh taken to a um, unholy pagan extreme in the um in the canaanites with the molech right but the point of that though is that there is a there's a sense that people have that if there is a god then i need to get right with it because i'm not right with it with it him them whatever the case is which is the basis for all um sort of religious appeals to god which is also why i think you see so uh, such a fervency, not around, quote unquote, people looking for God, but actually spending most of their time denying the existence of God. Because, you know, genuine, 
genuine exploration of the question of God is a led people being led by the Holy Spirit, I, I think, towards a um, hopefully towards a preacher. But most of the actual energy, at least in my anecdotal experience, but if you it's, it's, I've seen is um, people trying to deny it, because if you actually acknowledge there is one, well, then you better figure out if you're on the right side of it, them, they, um, him, her, uh, fast. And um, it's, it seems to be an easier thing to just simply deny it altogether. But you're right, Nick, you're exactly right, that the question of God itself is not in any way, shape, or form a good a good, good news, unless you know who this guy, I mean, that was Luther's whole thing. Where can I find a gracious God, right? Where can I find a merciful God whose property is always to have mercy? Well, thankfully we have our, God has revealed himself and in, in through the scriptures and in through his son. So we can, um, we can take comfort in that. Comfort ye my people, right? Isaiah. We have uh, over the last oh, two, three months, we had Mormons come over every Friday afternoon um, and this last Friday, we had them for lunch, uh, Mormon missionaries, and um, just kind of we're, we're take, playing the slow game with them, uh, letting them you know, try and convert us while we ask questions and try and uh, trip them up. And uh, we've been talking a lot about, you know, they, so they, it would be great if they came to the conclusion that their religion didn't quite work out. So that's quite kind of the idea. Um, but we were talking about repentance for the last two weeks. And... They're, they they tell you, they'll tell you right off the bat, if you repent and turn to Jesus, then you can have your sins forgiven. And say, great, that's that's wonderful. So uh, tell me what repentance is. And for the Mormons, repentance is not just, you know, a turn of mind or turn of heart or a, a crying for mercy from God. That's not repentance. That's, you know, either that's you feeling bad. But to repent, you have to actually stop the sinning. So you haven't repented from lying unless you never lie again. You haven't repented from lusting unless you never lust again. You haven't repented from um, a given sin unless you actually stop doing it. And until then, you haven't you haven't done it. I asked them, of course. So how how, how repentant are you? <laughs> so do you have are, have you managed to become fully repentant? Are you halfway repentant? Are you a quarter Most, repentant? Mostly repentant. Yeah, mostly, mostly repentant. Where you know they and they they're honest guys. They say, "Well, no, yeah, we're we're not quite." We're not quite totally repentant yet. So, so if Jesus were to come back today, then it wouldn't be the celestial kingdom for you, would it? And they say, well, we probably need to do more repenting. So, so, so um, it's interesting though, because I think some Christians have that kind of idea of repentance too. I think it fuels the, um, I can't come to church because I did something really bad yesterday or last mm-hmm. night or whatever. I think it's, I think it's what, um, I think people misuse Advent and misuse Lent in this way where uh, I've, I've got to clean myself up for God. That's what prepare his prepare, prepare the room for him means that, that I've, it's up to me. So I've got to have every room swept out and I've got to, you know, polish all my stuff and make sure I'm uber clean because if Jesus comes and he finds a speck of dirt on me, I'm in trouble. And so in that, if that's what Advent is about, or if that's what they're waiting for coming, the coming of Christ is about, you're right, Nick, that's not good news. That's, that's really horrible, horrible, horrible news. But if, in fact, repentance is an actual contrite heart, a heart that's been crushed by the law or broken open by the law, so that you say, uh, please help me, that, I think, is what repentance is. That, that, then you're ready for the coming of the Lord. Then when the tax collectors who were baptized by John, who really did repent, who really were recognizing that they're sinners in need of help, when Jesus shows up and says, I, I'm, the, I'm the helper, I'm the savior, their hearts are ready for it. 
the ones who were otherwise saying, well, no, I still got some other things to clean up first. They're not ready for it. <laughs> if, if Jesus is coming is something that, that requires those waiting for him to be utterly clean by their own hand, then Lord, let him not come ever <laughs> right. to stay away for as long as possible. Cause we're not going to, we're not going to do this thing. Well, our preface, our communion preface during Advent uh, speaks to that very point. You know, it says that we may without shame or fear rejoice to await his appearing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what um, I've been harp- harping on that, um, haranguing my uh, parishioners <laughs> <laughs> with that, with that. Um, because, because I think it's very, it's, it's poignant and it speaks exactly to the uh, point you're making, Matt, that, that we are those people who, in the audacity of the, the, of the gospel, by the power of faith alone, have, can, without guilt or fear, shame or fear, rejoice to behold his, his coming again, even in his coming again in glory and judgment. I mean, that's what's amazing, is it? And that's, that creates a, an entirely different people. I mean, this is what we've been saying, that, that I have been struck. I've been on an apologetic journey with my parish through this class that I'm teaching about the um, awareness of, of sort of combating the, the negative um, sort of uh, news about the decline of the church in the West and sort of seeing that as, the, as kind of a, a universal picture, because it's really not. I mean, it's, a, it's going to be in the great scheme of, of God's of redemptive history, um, one of these ebbs in the sine wave in a particular part of the church that's going to have been, as he has done um, with his people, uh, brought them through a time of judgment and refining, and on the other side, uh, a place of strength and growth. And, you know, we may, we probably won't live to see that, but the fact that it's moving around the world is the reality of a new people who are look into the future and towards the second coming without guilt or fear. And that creates an entirely different person. And yes, it doesn't create someone who like your Mormon friends who are entirely divested and devoid of sin, this side of heaven, but the hope that that is set before them and the promise of that coming redemption has in fact created a kingdom, not of this world, but in it. And that kingdom continues to expand. And that's what we've been celebrating during Advent. And, and doubling down on the, the preaching of the gospel, uh, particularly for the penitent, you know, for, for, for the people who are, who are um, you know, by God's mercy being brought into a deeper awareness of their sin, a deeper awareness of their conviction. It's like, well, this is the season for you. Like, this is the season, like every heart prepare him room. You know, this is what, uh, without guilt or fear, or without, without, without um, overwhelming guilt, maybe godly guilt, as C.S. Lewis says, but not, not condemning guilt, but, but embracing the judgment and, and trusting that it's from the hand of a loving father. That's all part of this amazing season. And um, I, I, like you, Nick, um, well, I like you when you're Presbyterian life, um, used to just spend, you know, Christmas Eve was the only different day in the entire Christmas season before Christmas Day. And, and it was, um, you know, I mean, I love my parents and it was a wonderful, I wouldn't trade, uh, growing up in their home over a non-Christian home, to be sure. But I think there's a richness to this that is that's rightly celebrated, and I'm grateful for it. And then it's that one day, and then boom, it's over, too. And it's a, yeah, uh, for sure. It's, 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 well, I have thought, I think this is yeah. a good idea, and this is not particularly theological or profound, but if we actually just gave gift cards um, and then went shopping for the 12 days of Christmas, you know, <laughs> everything would be on sale, and you could get everything you <laughs> Yeah, want. that's a good point. That's a good point. 12 days of Christmas, you know, like Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights, <laughs> right? So you could have, no one's bought into that yet, but I think it's, you know, you heard it here first. It's like we could have a whole, um, 
you know, wouldn't that be fun just to go back because everyone's returning and you're shopping. So anyway. That would be great. Um, yeah, the, so the, it, it is interesting though, to think away about the, um, I mean, I guess this isn't really, this is a little bit off topic too, but who cares? Um, We're in control here. This is our podcast. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. You keep mentioning the, the advance of the church and the, um, and the interim, the interim between the first and second coming. And you're, you're, you're sounding really uh, post-mill yeah, post there. Yeah, post-mill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Hashtag <laughs> post-mill. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying this on hard. I'm getting, I'm getting converted. I'm going to start to... Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that is the one That is the one element of this Jesus is Jesus's promise that is coming true that you that you believe. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 un, the unstoppable <laughs> expansion of the kingdom of God That's right. in, this, in the form of the church. Real quick... Help our listeners just say what post mill refers to quickly. I'll let you do that, uh, JD. Since you're no, I'm not even sure. I'm just the... I'm just trying to read the Bible. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to believe Jesus when He says all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm like, well, I guess that's all of it. So I don't know. I just think that um, no, he's. I'm not actually. I am. I, I am. I have been convinced to a certain degree. I don't know what you would call it, but the the idea of post millennialism means that the world that the world is slowly being subdued under Christ's rule. That's a, that's what it, and that he will return upon the completion of his church, having done what he commanded them to do, which is disciple, teach the nations and disciple, baptize, and and against that church, the gates of hell will not prevail. So, so his um, second coming is after, post the millennium, whether that's an actual literal thousand years or just a period. That's right. And the flip side of that, I guess, Matt, would be um, kind of a, well, amillennialism. Have we talked about this before on this podcast? Not in depth, uh, no. Amillennialism is sort of an, I wouldn't say an indifference to it, but there certainly seems to be a uh, spiritual, you know, I've, shorthand, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is, you know, things are tough, Jesus wins. Um, that's kind of the, uh, the in, in, I don't know if that's an oversight. Well, he's reigning he is reigning in heaven and he's he's reigning over the earth. Yeah. All all heaven and authority has been given to him on heaven on earth, but the, the millennium is something that's taking place in a heavenly sense. And, and, and and so, and then he's coming back, I guess the, the, the the plus side for amillennialism is that you're not, it makes sense of all those passages to say like a thief, he's coming like a thief in the night or we're not waiting necessarily for any particular trigger. He's just, he's going to, he's going to come at the right time and we just don't know when we're not waiting for the millennium to happen we have to wait a thousand years after he comes after he comes the first time for him to usher in the eternal age it's just it, the millennium is now and he's uh, going to come when he comes he's going to usher in the new heavens and new earth yeah and then the premillennial means that the there will be a thousand year reign um, after, well, it could be after if you're post-trib or pre-trib, but after the <laughs> tribulation of the church or, well, it'll come after the tribulation. The question is whether or not believers will be resur- uh, raptured before or after the tribulation. So there's some people who say we're in the middle of the tribulation or the tribulation is just starting or everyone's wondering about when the tribulation begins because that'll answer the pre or post-trib question if you're a believer and you're in the middle of it unless you thought you were a believer according to um left behind and then you realize that you actually weren't and then you got saved during the tribulation and at any rate i i've been convinced i haven't been i don't know what you know there's intricacies and nuances to all the positions um it did of course some most of which will not be um fully realized until until they're revealed but i do think there's something to this to this 
um, argument that the the expansion of the kingdom against the forces of darkness um, has in fact taken place. I mean, it, for instance, look at what the the um, the uh, UN is attempting to legislate. It's not Christianity by any by any stretch, but it is based upon. And Tom Holland, Dominion, in these books who give us good uh, um, warrant for this. They are trying to secularize a a ostensibly christian understanding of of human rights now they have some like the canaanites they have some some corruption of the actual christian message of the basis for and the expansion of human rights but the idea that there's a global organization that is in any way giving credence to an argument that individual human rights however defined should be protected and furthered around the country around the world is 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 a function and work of the church like that's not a like the Romans could care less about human rights, you know. I mean, the 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 great empires throughout history, the Persians, you know, were not interested in individual liberty, um, even if they define like the UN does today, individual liberty as libertinism and sort of an anti-Christian ethic. Nevertheless, we have the the vestiges. So you either see that as you either see that as going down, you know, that it's actually being corrupted and it's going to be corrupted more and more darkly which is certainly a possibility. Or you could argue that even the seeds, the leaven, is making its way through the lump. And so maybe it's not going to be in our lifetime or even our grandchildren's lifetime, but there does seem to be the hope for um, growing redemption. And of course, you know, the incredible uh, missionary activity in the what we call the Global South would indicate, and their um, prolific birth rates, which is which we're grateful for, means that even if in 2,000 years we've got um, most of the people look like, you know, African um, descent, um, then praise God, uh, you know, if by then it means that the Bishop Campicha and the, the Diocese of Kenya has has overtaken all of all of Africa. I mean, this is, again, I'm getting a little bit of, uh, off topic here, except for the fact that if in the middle of Advent, you are like I am, and I know you are too, I mean, excited about the possible second coming. There's also the joy of, of the consideration of being asked to live in the middle of, of the expansion of his kingdom, um, whether that comes post or pre-mill, um, you know, is, is secondary to the fact that we have, um, we have been called to, to witness to uh, his first coming and in the hope of his second in the middle of, of a life lived uh, between those two advents, which is a decidedly different life than the world has been given to live. And that's whatever you want to call it, a time of, of joy, even in the midst of, of judgment. I mean, that's what I preach about on Sundays. Like, how in the world did you catch that in the lectionary? John, you know, uh, who, who you brood of vipers and he, you know, give away all these things. And he's, his, threshing, his threshing fork is in his hand and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Luke says, and with this and other exhortations, he continues to preach the good news. Yeah, I, was like, I was like, let's work that out. So that's what, that's what we're, that's good news. It's good news that judgment is coming for those who have already been judged in the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, because we know that the judgment has already been levied, and therefore we are, as Stephen Paulson would say, free to move about the cabin, right? And that's where we are. I'm just going to go back and, and, and say one little thing in response to the, the post-mill uh, bit. I mean, I, I, and maybe I don't understand it well enough, and that, that's, that's totally possible because I have not done a lot of reading it. But, but it seems to me, and I don't know, tell me, tell me I'm, I'm misunderstanding. It seems to me is it puts the onus on us 
to prepare the world for for Jesus to come right. back. And so right. and so it almost sets us in the driver's seat of well, of time and history. And yes. I know you probably say, well, God's working through us. Yes, but I mean, I think that ultimately could and I yes. think in some in some the theological perspectives does devolve into we are God's hands and feet and he he totally depends on us to get things done. Yeah, I think that there again and I'm I am in the new to this um you know, as I've said, and I've been teaching about this, so that's what's been great. I'm teaching a class called The Other Reading, where we, we I do a Bible study on whatever was not preached on. And in our church, it's usually the gospel that's preached on, or at least when I'm not preaching, it's usually just how it is. And so I've been given the opportunity to dig into Revelation and Zephaniah, Zechariah, you know, these Daniel, these, these free readings we've been having. So I would argue, I would agree with you that there are ways in which all of these, well, you know, not to say what aboutism, but the flip side, negative side of premillennialism is, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So why even learn how to read? You know, I mean, like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So um doesn't really matter. And I actually know, you know, radical pre-mill uh, people who have were brought up that way. Um, you know, basically what difference does any social involvement make at all? Because the worst it get the worst it gets, that's just that's just proof positive that we're we're almost to the end, right? And the difficulty there is that in every generation, can you imagine living through the Black Plague? Like if you were a pre if you were a premillennial person, you thought that the judgment was you know you wouldn't be post trib because you were pretty much this is the tribulation. You know, forty percent of all of our known humanity is dead, and it seems like this is the end. And so we are we we're awaiting the next coming. You know, uh, if you for instance were. Um, you know, I think this is part of the expectation, part of the uh, early church's problem when they had the entire second temple destroyed, you know, in front of their faces. And even though Jesus had prophesied that, it's like, well, how, how much worse could this get, right? Like, this is this okay. You know, like you said, it was going to get bad, and here we are, and it's uh, the entire temple is destroyed, and um, uh, we'll see you soon, right? You know, and so that was part of the, 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 the issue, too. So I would say that there is a um, secularized uh, or a cynical, uh, non-Christian, uh, even if it's under the guise of Christian, uh, exposition of all of these positions that is that is clearly in error. And I think you're right to see a post-millennial, sort of cynical post-millennial baptizing of political parties, which we see, particularly we saw in the Episcopal Church, you know, that they, they had essentially said, well, we're going to, we, we now know what the problem is, and it's all of those... Um, those people, you know, and we're going to embrace the millennium development goals, you know, eradicate our church of Trumpers, and we will usher in the kingdom of tolerance, unity, and affirmation, you know, and so I agree with you, like, that is, that is not what, at least I appreciate what, what I, what the best expositions I've heard of a a post Christian post millennialism would emphasize at all times that it's cruciform, meaning that, that there is going to be all of the uh, persecution, all of the attempted silencing of the gospel, uh, which could necessitate um, persecution or, or bring with it commensurate persecution and um, trials of many kinds, you know, as, as the Bible promises. And yet the advancement of the kingdom through the power of the spirit will not stop. And so, you know, I think that gives credence to the advancement of, you know, like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church sort of thing that, um, you know, it's hard to argue that that is a victorious position, except from a eternal perspective. And I would say, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's, it's more of a shift in emphasis for me at the moment saying that the confidence 
that the uh, advancement of his kingdom, one heart at a time, is, well, I'm going to say holding me fast, but it's something that is an increasing source of joy and, and comfort for me uh, because of just looking around and seeing that despite the challenges the church has faced, it actually is at the moment as global, as um, numerical, as um, and even despite the, the cynical take on, on all of the various Protestant denominations, you know, we say every week, all baptized Christians are welcome to receive this sacrament of Holy Communion. That's a lot of people, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't say that we agree with you on all of your vestmentures or your, you know, your Pope or your, but there is a fundamental source of unity that's grounded in the person and work of Christ for sinners that actually unites um, you know, billions of people around the world to, at this moment. And that's, um, that's just something, quite something to behold. So again, I don't want to, well, we've taken it this far, Al, but I hear your, <laughs> no I hear your, now. <laughs> I hear your uh, concern though, Matt, and I think you, you're right to worry uh, about triumphalistic and overly uh, secularized uh, or overly baptized uh, sense of the power of political um, realities to affect, you know, internal change. You know, that being said, there's a huge discussion going on right now, you know, post-liberals, um, as they call it, you know, about the, uh, well, it, it's, it's distilled famously in the Sorab Amari and David French um, argument about the limits of liberalism when you have your local, your local library wants to have a drag queen story hour, you know, now, you know, to what extent do Christians in the political sphere have any um, Christian obligation to lobby one way or the other for the existence of that in their local community? Well, you know, that has, it's not entirely a political, uh, theological perspective, but, but what you think about Christians in the public sphere is affected by your your understanding or your belief in, in some of these questions. So again, I'm not, I'm, I'm sort of, as I've said to my parishioners, you know, we are not beholden. We don't have like the 40th article on what our <laughs> eschatology is. You know, there's not a, uh, we're not beholden to any of these as part of, you know, we're not like dispensationalists where it's the foundation of our, of our um, <laughs> church. Uh, so we have this real freedom that I'm, I'm embracing to try on some of these ideas um, and hopefully, in, on the other side, become an advocate for what I actually do believe about it, um, as opposed to, at the moment, kind of a, um, an, a sort of an indifferent, benign ignorance is really where, you know, to like the book of Revelation, to the relationship between Daniel, to the uh, preterist controversy, all these things where I was had a benign indifference to. And, um, well, I, I haven't fully come, I haven't written anything yet, but, um, but we're trying it on. And this has been an, in, an interesting season to to confront some of these ideas. It is interesting. I think the, the reformers, at least most of them, and I think, you know, the medieval church, not the, not the early church or the, the patristics who were historic primo, but I think amillennialism has been the primary Protestant view leading up to just recently. I mean, and, and then, then the more radical people who are related to more radical reformers fled to the, the kind of uh, pre-trib, pre-mill, and then some reform folks um, followed some other earlier reform folks in, in doing, doing post-mill. But I think, I think for the most part, up until recently, the amillennialism has, has been the, the kind of the, the, the most popular view, Lutherans and reform folks and Anglicans. Well, but you had, I mean, again, we're not, this is where the 
we, I didn't, we didn't prepare for this, this episode, but, um, <laughs> but it's my understanding. Wait, it's Advent, it, it fits, it's Advent. My, under pan, my understanding was that like, how, right? well, you certainly had like the Puritans. I mean, you know, Winthrop and people, I mean, Shining City on a Hill couldn't be less, nothing could be more post-millennial than, than that. I mean, the idea that, um, and you had the idea of, you know, I think pretty sure Hodge and Warfield and these guys, one of the great challenges to post-millennialism, which I think is still part of the, um, God's providence is the uh, early 20th century. You know, they had this idea, this sort of optimism in the late, the late 19th century that things were getting better. You know, we finally clarified um, some things. You know, we were we were on a we were the the the, the dawn of a of a universal brotherhood of man sort of thing. And then then you have trench warfare. You know, then you have then you have this 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 destruction of things. And I think. In my in my opinion, we've talked about this before. This was a um, this was a divine judgment on human optimism and misplaced trust. Because if we were trusting in our own chariots, you know, well, they're going to fail. You know, the arm of flesh will fail. And so I think that was definitely a, a clarifying uh, and corrective uh, aspect to whatever sort of optimism people had in themselves. And so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is where it's it's not that it remains to be seen, but I think that it's 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 a an interesting question and one that is increasingly debated today because we are seeing the recession of a generalized Christian cultural uh, buttress in the West. And the question now is being put forth, do we want to retain that somehow? Um, and if so, what are the basis for the retention and the arguments, either theologically or just sociologically? And that's what's bringing the question back up. Because for a long time, you know, you could, we all took for granted, well, we talked about this before, monogamy would be something that was, was um, a good idea, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, there's laws still in the books about adultery, you know, to this day. I mean, this was a given. And so now if, if those aren't going to be the case, well, then, you know, call it what you want, but we're going to have to ask uh, collectively, what would we prefer and why? And um, this is where we're going to end up. I mean, this is the conversation that's part of that right now. And so I think it's, um, yeah, I and mean, that's what we're having. So, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think, I think that um, we're, we are living in a generation unlike any generation um, in, in America anyway, maybe the 60s qualify, but not so much because of the technology we have. Well, we live in a generation where everything is being shaken, and the foundations that we that, that our fathers and grandfathers knew uh, just aren't aren't there anymore. I mean, you're right. I was reading. I mean, how many how many articles haven't have come out so far about in prominent journals or magazines, newspapers um, about how monogamy is harmful? Like, it's it's right. a bad thing to be monogamous. It's better to, to to play the field if you're married, and if your husband or wife won't let you do that, well, you need to leave and, and get someone who's more open minded. That's just like commonplace now. That's that's the 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 way we think about sex, the way we think about self, the way we think about any relationships we have are so radically different, and just, and it's and it's changed so much in just one generation. It does feel apocalyptic, and you're right. We have to think through these things as Christians. The people who are pre pre trib, pre mill, are always you know asking the question, "Who's the Antichrist?" You know, right. <laughs> Uh, maybe it was... It was Nero, and then it was, yeah. you know... Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Certainly it was the Pope at the time <laughs> of the Reformation. I mean, you know, it was... Um, then it was yeah. Khrushchev or Stalin. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, then it was... Right, uh, and so and so there's a, you know, there's this tendency to, in, that, in that atmosphere to kind of 
check out, read your newspaper with one hand, read the Bible with the, the Revelation with the other, and kind of identify who's who and what's what uh, in in the in the news. And yeah, I think I think that's um, it. Could just be that God has had enough of America. It could just be that God has had enough of uh, just like he had enough of Rome, and it fell and. And the barbarians took over and, you know, civilization carried on in a different form, in a different way. And, and that may be what's happening now. God might just be saying, okay, well, let's see. It's been 70 million babies you've murdered. And I'm now giving you over to the lusts of your flesh and your mind. And it's only about 10 more years, 15 more years. And, and your whole, this, your nation's going to crumble around your heads. And um yeah, and that's that could be what he's doing, and it, it may not be the end, it may not be the segue to the second coming. It may just be God cleaning house and tearing down an evil empire. So uh, end on some mind. good news now, Matt. <laughs> <You've>... <laughs> well, this is, but see, this is where see this is. I mean, again, we're having just this is just be our conversation from last week, part two, because uh, yeah, yeah. obviously it overlaps. But this is this is the question, though. I don't disagree with that that possibility, of course. I mean, you know, and I think that the the, the difficulty in applying Old Testament prophecy to, like, for instance, America, is that there's a dramatic, dramatic difference between the people of Israel, people and nation of Israel, and and America. I mean, I think that's something you know we talked about. Uh, that being said, it's not there is a correlation between the people of Israel and the church, and I think that's I mean right. that's a fair and so and so. I think that within whatever happens to America and, you know, you're a veteran, I thank you for your service. And, uh, you know, we have people in our family that have, um, have fought for an ideal and, you know, there's all sorts of practical patriotic things we can say about the, the good that has come from America. It's not all, it's not an unmitigated good, but it's, 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 you know, what did Roosevelt say? It's the, it's the best of the worst, you know, it's the, it's the best thing out there. That's still the worst. Um, and, uh, but the point is, as the church, we can be called back by prophets to repentance. You know, we can be brought back uh, like Zephaniah, you know, just preached this last week that we can, uh, the promised judgment is coming and yet the, the victory has been fulfilled. And so repent and turn back. And we could then continue to see the, well, the advancement of the kingdom, even in the midst of perhaps the destruction of you know, the evil Western empire that has committed itself to mocking God in all possible ways that it can. And so, you know, again, this is not just an argument for post-mill, pre-mill, whatever. It's just a practical reality of hope in the midst of what is very apocalyptic time. Is it like Augustine, city of God, we can have confidence that despite the judgment that may still come, and is certainly here. I mean, like the, the, the despair, the, uh, confusion, the, uh, the the sort of turmoil that we see in people's lives and in the, the the body politic in our country and in the West is is part of the judgment of God. I don't think there's any way to. I mean, that's not that's not rocket science to point out. But I do think that the church has an opportunity to repent, and we are being cleansed and and refined, and we will be here. Um, one way, shape, or form on the other side of whatever judgment is levied or meted or alleviated uh, on our country. And I think that's what yeah. the hope that I've been taking during this advent in the church's advancement. And perhaps mm -hmm. to your question, is a cruciform, some version of cruciform post-millennialism, because it says that, you know, if, you know, there was still a church in the middle of Babylon, you know, God did judge the Israelites and and nevertheless raised up a ruler who finally allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And then what did they do? 
they rebuilt the temple and then um, proceeded to uh, turn into Pharisees and Sadducees, right. you know? So it's like, and so Jesus come, I mean, it's fascinating to read, you know, Jesus and John the Baptist wasn't preaching like Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi about idolatry and syncretism. You know, John the Baptist was talking about the ethno pride of, you know, don't say you have Abraham as your father, you can raise up these rocks. And Jesus was mad that they were getting mad at him for not washing properly and eating with tax collectors and sinners, you know? So you had this, the various times of the church, we could say, have been marked by particular heresies that God has exposed through prophets and then brought through that period in time of refining and restored. And so we may be living at the the beginning of that judgment. You know, we could be living at the beginning of that restoration. I'm not sure, but I certainly know for me that having lived through kind of the church growth movement and the vapidity of the 90s and early 2000s sort of Christian culture in America that I have been am have been am and will probably continue to be refined and and recentered and and as it were judged um, but under the hand of a loving father and i think part we're all living realities of that judgment of god on the church that has gone awry and being brought back to its first foundational gospel principles and i pray that whatever happens to the west well, I don't pray, I trust, I do pray, but trust in, in the prayerful hope that God will be using this to further his kingdom and strengthen his people and continuing to hold his, his church fast. Well, you signed on for an Advent episode and you got a hard left turn into the end times. <laughs> always a fun well, conversation. Always a fun conversation about the second coming. That's right. That's right. Advent is about two comings. Well, that's going to be all the time that we allot for ourselves this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email. We've been getting a lot of great emails lately. Thank you for those. To mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Before I thank you, are we going to record next week, guys? What do you think? It's Christmas week. Is it our week off? I don't think I can. Okay. We deserve a vacation. We work hard. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> I'll just do one by myself. I'll just, I'll do a, I'll do a greatest hits by cutting, editing all of Matt's uh, sayings together and then making him answer, making him answer funny questions <laughs> out of context. That's the, what I'll do. So. The Decay part two. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, thank you guys, Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we will not be here next week, but the week after that, we'll be back, Lord willing. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.